Well, I'm excited to be with you this morning. Uh, thank you for uh, being a part of our worship here this morning. I uh, hope and trust that you are having a great 4th of July weekend with your family and your friends um, as, we, uh, as we continue our worship together. Let me pray for us as we get started this morning. Father God, I thank you for the opportunity that we have to gather to uh, worship you corporately and to sit at the feet of your word to uh, be challenged by the truth that it contains. Father, I want to pray that you would open our hearts to receive your message here this morning. I pray that you would guide my words as I speak, that they would be words of truth and that they would um, find a spot deep in our hearts that would lead to a transformed life as we leave today. In your name that we pray, amen. Well, I want to start off today by doing a little image association with you. Uh, I want to put a couple images up on the screen, and I want to ask you, what is the first thing you think of when you see this image? And I'll start off by one that very many people know, Coca-Cola. What is the first thing you think of when you see the brand Coca-Cola? Quintessential America brand. Maybe you think of how good it is. Maybe you really want one right now. Um, maybe you think, oh my goodness, you think of their advertising, you you think how, you know, he'd like to reach the world, give the world a Coke, something like that, right? Old song, how it goes, right? Uh, how about the next one? Let's think Mercedes-Benz. What's the first thing you think of when you see the phrase and that icon, Mercedes-Benz? Maybe it's a high-end vehicle, a luxury vehicle. Maybe it's the type of vehicle that Pastor Steve would drive. <clears throat> Going to get in trouble for that later. Uh, born in Germany, well-built, it's robust, it lasts a long time, right? Or how about this one, my personal favorite, Chick-fil-A. Can't go a sermon without talking about Chick-fil-A. What do you think of when you think of Chick-fil-A? Great food, the world's best chicken sandwich, southern values, biblical values, closed on Sunday, um, great place to get free food. Some people may say it's my second office. I like to spend time there. You know, whenever we think of a name, there's always an immediate meaning that we tie to it. It's a way that we think about it. It could be the beverage we choose to drink or the vehicle that we choose to drive, the food we eat. Even the names that we give our children, names are significant. And every time a name is spoken, a very specific meaning or purpose is given to it. I'm wondering how many of you have had the privilege while you were growing up to have your full legal name spoken by one of your parents? Exactly. Eric Lee Grosinger. It wasn't always a term of endearment, right? And, but there was a very specific purpose and a meaning behind when it was spoken. And I'm guessing that it wasn't that your mom wanted to give you a nice big hug and a lollipop, right? But names communicate meaning and value. And perhaps no name communicates more meaning and more value or worth to us as believers than the name of Jesus. Because Jesus is the central person to our faith. He is the core of the reason why we have the opportunity to be reconciled and have a relationship with Him. To us believers, He's more than just a mere man who lived 2,000 years ago. 
someone who spoke wise words or, or had a following. He's God himself. And in the flesh, and he came down to rescue us and to restore us into that relationship with God because of his death and resurrection. But as you and I have studied scripture, we see that Jesus is referred to by many different names. In fact, there's been a number of books and lists that have been made that really seek to document a lot of what these names are and maybe the meaning and the intent behind them. Well, I'm a visual learner, and so a while ago I took a number of those names and I created a word visual image of picture art, if you will. And I wanted to share it with you um, because a way to kind of help me visualize many of the different names of Christ that are represented. There we go. And I'll tell you that it's not exhaustive by any means, but it's one way that has helped me and maybe it'll help you too visualize a lot of the different ways that Christ is portrayed in Scripture. Now, being someone who is always open to having really good conversation with someone over my favorite coffee beverage at Caribou Coffee, especially if you're the one who's buying, um, I would love to actually sit and chat with each of you and say, what name of Jesus really resonates with you? And I bet that as we were having that conversation and we were encouraging each other and, and sharing why a particular name of Jesus meant so much to us, we would walk away from that conversation with a deeper understanding and a greater appreciation of how great and full Christ truly is. And I'll imagine that if we were to get together again in the future and have another Coke or a coffee and have another conversation, there's a chance we'd have a different name of Christ that would resonate with us. And then another and another. Because as we travel through life, as we go through different seasons and experiences and situations and as we continue to grow in our relationship with Christ, we come to having a deeper understanding and discover more of who Christ is and a lot of his different characteristics and his qualities. I'm really grateful that Scripture has given us so many different names of Christ because there's really no one word that can fully encompass the fullness of who he is. So, um, as I've had a chance to study a lot of these names of Christ, and so today, I'd like to share with one, one with you in particular, and that's the name I Am. It's a rich and powerful name of Christ, and uh, I want to share that with you and kind of unpack a little bit more of kind of some of the meaning and the implications that we have for that. So if you have your Bibles, I'd like to invite you to open them to John chapter 8, verses 48 to 59. John chapter 8, 48 to 59. And as you do that, let me just share with you just a little bit of uh, the backstory that's leading us up to this point of where we're going to jump into the passage. Throughout this entire chapter of John, uh, Jesus has been engaged in some conversation with some of the Jews who have recently chosen to believe in him. But to be honest, they were still pretty confused about who Jesus really was. They were puzzled over a lot of what he said and They had a really hard time understanding the truth of what he was referring to, specifically as it related to what a true disciple looked like. So it got to the point where the Jews became so irritated with Jesus and what he was saying that the only thing that they could do was to attack him as a person, to attack his identity. So let me start off by reading to us verse 48 in John chapter 8. 
says, The Jews answered him, Aren't we right in saying that you are Samaritan and demon-possessed? I'm not possessed by a demon, said Jesus, but I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. I'm not seeking glory for myself, but there is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Very truly, I tell you, whoever obeys my word will never see death. And at this they exclaimed, Now we know that you are demon-possessed. Abraham died, and so did the prophets. Yet you say that whoever obeys your word will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died, and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? Jesus replied, If I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My father, whom you claim is your God, is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and obey his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. You're not yet fifty years old, they said to him, and you have seen Abraham. Very truly I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. And at this, they picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. Well, right off the bat in this passage, we see the Jews attack Jesus by calling him a Samaritan. Now, if you spend any time looking at these two people groups, the Jews and the Samaritans, you know that there's very little love that these two groups share with each other. In fact, hatred between these two groups was the norm. For a Jew to be called a Samaritan in those days was considered a racial slur and one of the worst insults towards someone that could ever be made. And then you add to that the accusation of being demon-possessed, and you've pretty much added insult to injury. But I love how Christ chose to respond in this situation. Instead of responding to their specific accusations, Christ says in verses 49 and 50, says that his focus, his mission, is to honor the Father and to bring glory to him. And he reminds the Jews in verse 51 that those who keep their focus on his word will never see death. That's the mark of a true disciple. That's exactly what Jesus was trying to communicate to them earlier on in this chapter. The Jews, they just weren't comprehending that. They had a hard time getting his message. They thought Jesus was referring to physical death. And so, their belief that Jesus was demon-possessed became even more true. Because as you see their response in verse uh, 52, Now that we know that you're demon-possessed, Abraham died. In fact, all the prophets died. You said if they followed your word, they wouldn't die. You can almost kind of hear the accusatory tone in their voice, right? Like, oh, we got him. Oh, we caught him. All right? High fives, you guys. Come on, we got this. Like, you're so full of it. Is there any doubt that this guy has a demon in him? And yet, Jesus gently and confidently reminds them of his focus and his mission is to glorify the Father and to obey his word. But then he shows how he is greater than Abraham when he says in verse 58, Very truly I tell you, before Abraham was born, I am. There we have it. Two simple words. But those two simple words triggered something in the minds of these Jews. 
Because those were the exact same words used by God to describe himself to Moses during the burning bush back in Exodus chapter 3. And by saying those exact same words, Jesus was affirming his eternality and equal status and nature with God. In short, he claimed that he was God. And if you remember the story from Exodus chapter 3, God spoke to Moses through a burning bush. Right? And he cast the vision for Moses to be God's mouthpiece to Pharaoh and to be involved in bringing God's people out of captivity. But it was during that conversation that Moses and God had where Moses asked God a question. He says in Exodus chapter 3, 13, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? What shall I tell them? Only stop right there for a moment because I think there's a significant moment that's happened right here and I don't want us to lose out on that. Up to this point, no one dared to mention and utter the name of God. In Hebrew, the Lord's name had four letters. Y-H-W-H. And may have been pronounced something similar to Yahweh. The Jews came to regard this word with such reverence that they wouldn't utter it at all for fear that they would use the Lord's name in vain. Instead, whenever they came across this word in the Hebrew text, they would replace it with the word Adonai, which meant my Lord. When our English translations of Scripture came along, they did something similar. Whenever you see the word Lord in all caps, it's actually a substitution of the word Yahweh a word that was never spoken by the Jews. But what God chooses to do in this interaction with Moses is to give him a deeper, more personal meaning of his name Yahweh. Exodus 3.14 goes on and it says, God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. In other words, God is who he is. God is. It's a term that describes God as God was, God is, and God always will be. He's never changing. God is above all things. He's before all things. He's eternal. He's infinite. He's mighty. He is outside of time. He's the one true God. And because God is not bound by time, He's not bound by situations, He's not bound by resources, His plan and purposes will always be accomplished. God made that promise to Moses that his mission would be fulfilled. And it was. And as we see here in John chapter 8, Jesus chooses to identify himself in a similar fashion because he is God. But in doing that, Jesus made a radical claim that the Jews were infuriated with. They considered it blasphemy for anyone to equate themselves with God. And according to Leviticus, it was punishable by death. And as we see in the closing verse of this chapter, it ends by them picking up the stones and getting ready to stone Jesus. But he slips away. But what I want to do this morning is kind of look at this claim of Jesus being I am a little bit uh, more deeply. And I want us to ask the question, what are the implications for us in knowing that Christ, or God, is I am? I think there's three. Let me just kind of 
go through these with you. The first one is this. Because He is I Am, He is worthy of all of our worship and our highest interest. Let me ask you a question. When was the last time you just paused to meditate on the truth that God is? He never had a beginning. God never has an end. He's eternal. He's absolute. God is at the center of everything. John Piper wrote this about this idea. He says, God's absolute being means that he is the most important and most valuable reality and the most important and valuable person in the universe. He is more worthy of interest and attention and admiration and enjoyment than all other realities, including the entire universe. When was the last time that God received more interest, attention, admiration, and enjoyment from you than any other person, place, or thing in this world? Because He is, because God is I Am, our response is to be one of lifting high His name as the one who is the most important and valuable person in every aspect of our lives. Does your life reflect that? Is mine? Think back over the last 24 hours of your life. Has God received the most attention and interest and enjoyment from you? Have you found yourself fully satisfied in the Lord? What place does He hold in your life? Something for us to think about and to ask the Lord to uh, convict us of if he isn't in that first and highest authority in the place of our lives. Second implication is this. Because he is I am, we know our name. And our name is I am not. If you believe that God is I am, by default, by nature of that name, we all must be called something else. There cannot be multiple I am's or they contradict the name itself. And so if God is I am, then we must be called I am not I am, or I am not for short. I recognize I'm kind of having a little play on words here for a little bit, but the point is this. It results in us having a posture and an attitude of humility in our lives. And as we come to understand how great and majestic and awesome the great I am is, As we gaze on Him and His greatness, we come to recognize how small and insignificant we truly are. We are not. We are not in control. We are not running the show. We're not all-powerful. We are not the creator of everything. We are not. Oh, but how often do we try to be? How often do we try to be in control or to try to be God or try to run the show? In our careers, we work extra hours or we take on assignments or we go the extra mile just so that we can make a name for ourselves. Or we consume ourselves with trying to get certain titles in front of our name. Doctor, president, or coach, or professor. Or we try to get letters behind our name. An MBA, a PhD, Why? Just so that we can feel more important. We can get that extra raise or certain accolades that come with those positions. Or maybe we try to be the best mom or the best grandparent or we try to have the best behaved kids that 
excel in sports and music. Because if they look good, we look good, and other people will think highly of us. But what if we just humbly accepted this position that's already given to us? I am not. Can we say that together for a minute? I am not. It's kind of hard to say, isn't it? We'll try it one more time. I am not. But God's name is still the great I am. Amen? Let's allow the truth of that to sink into our hearts, into our mind, and play out in how we conduct ourselves on a daily basis. And finally, the third point is this. Because he is I am, we're invited to exchange the starring role in our story for a supporting role in his story. You know, we all have a story that we're writing with our lives. And if we're honest with ourselves, many of us think that our story is the best story. You know, we focus on a lot of our time and our effort and our energy on developing that, right? We want to make sure it's exactly what we want and, and the ending is exactly how we want it to be. And we want everybody to know that our story is the best story. But the great I Am says, I want you to give up writing your story. And I want to exchange that to be a part of my grand story. Because in the grand scheme of things, our existence, our life story, it's nothing more than a blip in the vast universe of stories. And to be honest, it's one that many people are likely going to forget a few years after we're gone. But God's story is different. It's already in motion. It's been in motion before the creation of the world, and it's going to continue to be in motion quite well after our story's done. Thank you very much. It's the story of the great I Am, who, out of the abundance of love that he has for us, has chosen to pursue us, to redeem us, to rescue us, and to give us hope in life, to give us purpose and meaning. And we find that in the person and the work of Jesus and what he's done for us on the cross. That's the gospel. That's the story that God is inviting us to be a part of and to help spread and communicate to others. And so we, the I am nots of the world, have been invited to partner with the great I am in the story of redemption and rescue to help make his name great throughout the world. But how is this possible if I am not? How can we make God's story our story? Well, on our own strength, we can't. It's possible only when we choose to accept and begin a relationship with the great I Am. In essence, if we were to put it all together, we could say, I am not, but I know I am. Could you say that with me? I am not, but I know I am. And because we know the great I am and allow the great I am and his power to work through us and in us, our lives will be used by God to accomplish his greater purpose and fulfill his greater mission for our lives. That's his story that we have the honor and the opportunity to be a partner of. Because we now have a mission. We have a purpose, a higher calling in our lives. And that is to make knowing Christ the greatest goal and passion that we pursue with our lives, and to invite others to join us in that pursuit. Louis Giglio, a well-known author and a speaker and a pastor, he wrote a book called, I Am Not, But I Know I Am. 
it's given me a lot to consider when it comes to this idea of understanding God as the great I am. But in it, he describes the Christian life like this. He says, One of the great and mysterious joys of the Christian life is the reality of Christ's life within, a source of power and a quality of life that allows me to be all that God calls me to be. That's why Paul wrote of a new mystery when he exclaimed that it is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He does not say it's Christ and you that brings the hope of a glorious life, but Christ in you. I love that. It's not about Christ and you, it's Christ in you. It's about surrendering ourselves, surrendering our story, our entire life, and receiving and living out God's story for us. That is when we find the joy and the glorious life that Paul was referring to. In the words of John the Baptist, He must increase. I must decrease. And that's why I want to invite us to exchange the starring role in our story for a supporting role in His story as a result of the power and the love that we have received because of that relationship with Christ from the great I Am. I want to close this morning with a short, brief video of Louis Giglio reading a section out of this book that I just referred to. And I share this with you as an encouragement and as a challenge. So when the days of struggle and questioning and doubting come, which they will, you'll know that there is a God who is always there, who is ready and able to answer every question, every doubt, your fears, or every challenge that you give them, and to equip you and to guide you to live out the story and the life that he has enabled you to live through Christ. Because God himself is the great I am. Father, we pause to just remember the simple truth that you are the great I am. Father, you are a rock, the one that we can rely on the one that has chosen to redeem us, to make us with a purpose and a mission. Father, I pray that we would be reminded of that truth and that we would choose to exchange our story for your story so that your name can be magnified and glorified throughout the entire world. In your name we pray. Amen.